You know, I don't know about you guys, but the Olympics is coming to a close. I don't know if you know that. Closing ceremonies are tonight at 4 o'clock. Um, and, you know, and the Olympics has just been fun to watch. I love watching the Olympics. There's something about watching the best of the best at their craft. You know, and you also get to watch all the obscure sports, the sports that you don't really see all the time. Myself, I love watching swimming, gymnastics, and track and field. Those aren't that obscure, but I, I just like watching those sports because you just don't see them all the time. And then you see people, I mean, this is, this is their NBA championship. This is their Super Bowl, and it only comes once every four years. And it's just awesome to see. You know, last night, uh, Matthew Centrowitz from the U.S., he, uh, he won the 1,500-meter, which is basically the mile, the first time a U.S. runner has done that in 108 years. It's crazy. So tons of great storylines out there. Uh, I'm super proud of the U.S. team. They represented us very well. Uh, the medal count has been amazing. But um, before the Olympics start, before the, even the opening ceremony starts, they start the torch relay. And uh, the torch relay begins months before the Olympics begin, and, and it's kind of like to get that, that country revved up. You know, so they start carrying the torch. Runners from that country carry the torch from town to town for months. And they did that in Rio. And they were running around. And, you know, and sometimes the torch is received with great joy. Most of the time it's received with great joy. Uh, there are times where it's not. Actually, when the runner from uh, Rio, when he actually entered Rio to, to the fin- one of the final legs of the torch, he was pelted with rocks because of protesters. I mean, I don't think anybody told him he was going to be stoned because he wanted to carry an Olympic torch for his country. But, you know, that's just what happened. The cool thing about the Olympic torch is it stays lit throughout the entire Olympics, through the entire games, all the way till the end. You know, when I think about that, I'm like, man, that, that, that just kind of sounds like the Christian faith. You know, we are called to be a light, called to be a torch for Jesus. You know, the type of light that you are actually matters. You're not called to be a firecracker. You're not called to be a lightning bolt. Those things are awesome. They're impressive. They're like, boom, and then they're gone. It's not you. You're called to be a sustaining light. Something that lasts till the end. You know, uh, we're called to be something like the Olympic torch. Now, we're going to look at Paul this morning. Paul was just an amazing torchbearer for God. He was a tor- an amazing torchbearer in the name of Jesus. He went on many missionary journeys. And we're going to look at his example, just to, actually just a piece of his example, like one little leg of his journey. We're going to look at that and, and just see how you can bear the torch of the Christian faith and how you can be that sustaining light. And so we're going to jump right in in Acts chapter 15. And really, we're going to be in Acts 15 and 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to bookmark both of those books, that's where we're going to be all morning. Um, point number one, if you're going to be a sustaining light, you have to have the right purpose. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there have been times in my life when I was wondering, what is my purpose? I had no idea. And one of the most refreshing things ever was when I got to study the Bible, kind of like what 
uh, Katie was talking about studying the Bible. When I got to study the Bible, I learned about a purpose that I can live the rest of my life for. And the Christian purpose, it's kind of simple, really. I'm going to I'm going to dull it down to like two sentences right now. Love God, love God with all your heart and love people. There you go. That's it. Love God, love people. You know, and he also tells us to help other people love God. And that's part of loving people is helping them to love God. You know, but that's really when you're like, what's my purpose in life? That's my purpose in life. You know, that's what I do. That's my purpose in life. It's not my job. It's just how I live the rest of my life, whether I'm a minister or I'm a full-time employee. That's my purpose. We have to have the right purpose. And in Acts 15, we're going to start there because Paul was just a great example of that purpose. Uh, The context of this is Paul had just gotten back from Antioch. He had delivered a message to some Gentile Christians who they were trying to figure out, like, what what standards do we hold these people to? You know, the Gentiles were pretty much like uh, they, they, they were he, they were the heathens of the day. They were the pagans of the day. They were the they were the unchurched. You know, they didn't really have a moral compass until they became Christians. And so the, the, the Jews who actually had a moral somewhat of a moral compass, they they had to come up with some like, hey, what are some standards that we're going to hold them up to? We can't hold them to our standards that we've been living by our whole lives. We're going to what standards are we going to hold them up to? And so they came up with a letter. You can go back and read most of the. Part of chapter 15, Paul and his friend Barnabas went and delivered the letter. And then in verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. You see, Paul got it. Paul, Paul knew that the mission from, given from Jesus was to go make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and then to teach them everything. So Paul... And, and Barnabas, they came up with this plan. They're like, hey, we're going to go back to some of the churches we help plant. We're going to encourage them. We're going to strengthen them. And, you know, it sounds like a great plan, right? Verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They had this amazing plan to go reach out to all the churches, and boom, kind of had a rough start. These two brothers in the faith, these two pillars in the faith, had such a sharp disagreement you know, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, and Paul's like, I don't want that guy on my team. He left us. He wasn't about the work. I don't want him on my team. And it was such a sharp disagreement, they just, they just agreed to go different ways. Still the same purpose. Still the same plan, but we're just going to go our own way here. You take that guy, I'll take Silas with me. And that's how they left it. You know, and that how it is sometimes. You get excited about your purpose. You get excited about a plan. And then immediately it feels like it's already trying to be derailed. You know, Lashane and I just got back from uh, San Diego for some family time. 
And I remember, you know, you know, part of my purpose as a husband is to, to lift my wife up, to make her feel special. And uh, Lashana was baptized in San Diego at La Jolla Shores, and uh, she loves Joe's Crab Shack. And they recently closed uh, the closest one to us in Ventura. So we had a day where we're like, this is going to be an encouraging day. We're going to go to La Jolla, and we're going to go to Joe's Crab Shack. Um, for those that you don't know, I have an eight-month-old, and he did not like the plan. Every other day on our time away as a family was amazing. But that day for Levi, he just was not having it. You know, we're at Joe's Crab Shack, and if you've ever been there, you know, you're having to, you know, you can't eat fast there because you have to work for your food. That's one of the things I hate the most about seafood. You just can't go. That's a different lesson. But, you know, we ended up having to, like, kind of take turns, like, all right, I'm going to take him on a walk and... You eat, and I'm, you take him on a walk, and I'm going to eat. And, you know, then we kind of end up that lonely person at Joe's Crab Shack, cracking your own crab, eating it by yourself, and no one to share it with. And, you know, that's part of the experience. But that's how it happens sometimes. We're excited about our purpose. We have this amazing plan, and boom, it's derailed. Boom, you're discouraged. You know, Paul... Continued on his plan. It says he came to this place called Lystra. And in Lystra, in verse chapter 16, it, it, it's important because he, he, he got in contact with this guy named Timothy. And Timothy joined him. You know, Timothy is an important character to remember in the life of Paul because Timothy was like the guy that Paul was grooming. Guy that Paul was training to take over the ministry. You know, Timothy, uh, if you didn't know, Paul wrote, the last letter that Paul wrote was to Timothy. And he said, Timothy, I need you right now. I mean, they grew close, but this is where their journey began. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes our plans get derailed, but then there, there's something else that God has in store for us. We just have to keep going. You know, and in Acts 16, verse 9, you know, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, the plans changed. You know, the plan started out, we're going to go strengthen the churches to you're going to go make some disciples in this place called Macedonia which was pretty much like a, a conglomerate of people, Greeks, Romans. Some Jews were there, mostly made up of Gentiles, though. And, and, you know, and God was sending them to Macedonia. You know, they get on a boat and they sail across the sea. And the first city they come to is a place called Philippi. If you don't know what that is, that's the, you know, the letter to the Philippians. That's the name of the city that they were in. Paul gets to Philippi with Silas. With Timothy, it says we, that actually means Luke was with him as well, and maybe a few others. And he's preaching the word. He's praying. He helps this lady named Lydia become a disciple. And people start to notice. And people actually didn't like it. You know, when you're living out your purpose, there's going to be objections. People aren't necessarily going to like 
what you're doing. In verse 20, it says, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attack joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. You know, how do you think Paul felt after this? How do you think he felt about his new plan? And we came to this place to preach the gospel. I feel like God called me here. We've seen some victories. The church is starting to grow. And here I am, I'm getting beat to death. I mean, how do you, I mean, just what was going through his head? You know, sometimes our plans change. But the purposes of a disciple never does. That's why if you continue reading the rest of this chapter, what's Paul and Silas doing? They're singing songs in prison. They're praying. They're like, glory, glory, hallelujah. You know, people are hearing it. They hear them praying. I don't know if Paul was a good singer or not. I know I'm not. But they're singing. They're praying. And then an earthquake happens. Their chains are let loose. The doors are opened. And then, I don't even get this part, but nobody left. I don't get it. The jailer wakes up after the earthquake. He sees the doors open and he was like, he's like, I'm going to kill myself. He literally was ready to kill himself because if all the, uh, um, everybody had escaped, he was just dead anyways. Paul's like, hey, no, we're all still here. You know, what does that tell me about Paul? Man, he was reaching out while in prison. I mean, he had enough. I mean, he, he was keeping the prisoners there still. He's like, no, don't leave, guys. We want to save this guy's life. The guy came up, the jailer came up to Paul and said, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul reached out to him. He said, hey, you need to believe. You need to get baptized. And he was that night. The next day. Paul left. You know, purposeful living happens on purpose. That might be a surprise to some of you. But purposeful living happens on purpose. But you know what? It takes some grit. It takes some toughness because to live with purpose, you're going to need self-denial. You're going to need repentance. You're going to need to persevere because it's going to be tough at times. But that's okay. Actually, if it's not tough, you're probably not living with purpose. You know, it takes resolve. Because your resolve is going to be tested when you're tired. Your faith might be shaken. I wonder if Paul's faith was shaken when he was thrown in jail. You're going to be pushed to limits that you didn't know were there. And you'll make a difference. In someone's life. I ask you this morning. Are you living with the right purpose? That's the only way 
to be a sustaining light. Point number two, if you want to be a sustaining light, is you have to have the right message and the right example. Why are those both included in the same point? Guys, you can't, you will never be effective with only one of those. You say, well, man, man, my, I preach the word, my message is awesome, but your example is stinky. You will never be effective. I actually think a lot of people here fit to the opposite category. You got a pretty good example. You're loving. But nobody knows why. Guys, we need to have the right message and the right example. In Acts 17, verse 1, after they had left, I mean, remember, they just got out of prison. They just got beat. And they had to leave. In verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. You know, Paul's message was simple. He says, Jesus is the Christ. You know, sometimes I think when we're, we're, we're coming up with the right message, we can complicate things. And my granddad used to tell me, Aaron, just kiss it. Keep it simple, stupid. That's what he would tell me. He's like, just, just keep it simple. Jesus is the Christ. That's all you need to know. The results, they were saved. Now flip over to 1 Thessalonians to learn a little bit more about the message and the example that Paul had. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. What was his, how was his message framed? It was power. It had deep conviction. It was with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes our message can kind of be weak. Like, wait, well, hey, why don't you drink? Christian. You know, that's how we get their message came with conviction. Why don't you do that like everybody else? Well, because the Bible says so. That's why I don't. You know, do we say it with your chest? You know, you got to say it loud. You know, Paul's message was powerful. But in chapter two, verse six. He says, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And sometimes that's the one thing we need to hear. It's like, it's not about what other people think. It's about what God thinks. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much 
that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We also thank God continually because we, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word for men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You know, Paul talking to the Thessalonian church, and remember, this church is made up of mostly unchurched people, Gentiles. They're not all that religious, but they were humble to his words. I love what verse 13 said, you When you receive the word of God, you heard it, which you heard from us. You accepted it as it actually is the word of God. You know, he tells them that when we were with you, we made sure to set an example. We comforted you. We encouraged you. We were gentle with you. You know, Paul loved the people so much. His message was on point. His example was on point. And I want to look at chapter 4, and I, you know, because I think there's something here for our church to hear. You know, Paul, had a, Paul made an impact on them because he had the right message. And in chapter 4, starting verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and in that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you for god did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life therefore he who rejects man or he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but god who gives you his holy spirit now about brotherly love we do not need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by god to love each other And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. You know, Paul challenges the church on their purity. And guys, he says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. What's your standards on what's okay? When it comes to purity. We are not made to be impure. We need to know that. Purity is one of the most dangerous things that our society faces today. 
You can't be mad at me for saying it either. Because he says, he who rejects this instruction doesn't reject man, but God. You know, when we choose to be impure, we are rejecting our almighty God. What's your standard with purity? It needs to be absolute. Not, well, you know, I I struggled last week. You know, it's been a few months. It's been a, you know, no, absolute. That's the standard. But you know what? Like, there's another thing in here that I think rings true with, with us. And you can miss it if you just read too fast. But I'll go back and he says, the first verse, he says, We instructed you how to order in order how to live ple excuse me. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Verse 9, about brotherly love, we do not need to write you for yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. You know, how do you feel about that? More and more. You know, honestly, I can read that and I can think to myself, God, I'm giving all I have already. Paul says, more and more. I can say, I'm loving people. I'm shepherding people. I'm giving financially. I'm serving. I, you know, more and more is what Paul says. He says, you've given everything you've got. Awesome. Give more. You're completely broke down. You're worn out. Great. Take it to another level. That's what he's saying to us. You know, and I'm not sure how this church received this message. You know, I think they were probably pretty in touch with their sins. So when they were called to do it, to change more and more, they were happy to do so. But you know what happens to me? Is the more mature I become as a disciple. I've been a disciple almost eight years. The harder this one feels more and more more and more challenges are comfort and i think comfort is one of the biggest challenges that we face here in santa clarita you know we get comfortable with old stories we go like man when i was in campus we cranked We had 100 baptisms, 100 souls saved in two weeks. You know, and you're like, like, man, it was just so amazing. And then I ask you, like, what have you done in your marriage Bible talk in the last year? Or some of the students were like, man, last semester we had 10 Bible studies going on at the same time. It was amazing. People were repenting. People were changing. Awesome. And why are there zero Bible studies going on right now? And why is everybody in sin? It's because we got comfortable. We forgot that the Christian life is about growth. It's about going to the next level. And that's what Paul is talking to this church about. He's like, hey, you're doing some good things. Do it more. 
Take it to another level. Get uncomfortable. It's not going to be easy. More is the expectation. And I want to show you guys. I want to do a little illustration. I need the whole church to stand up really quick, okay? Some of us, we're, we're down here. We're all down here right now. But some of us are just on this level playing field. We're living comfortably. You know, we wake up. We have a 20-minute quiet time. We go to work. We might pray on the way to work. We reach out to somebody every day. And that might be a stretch. Maybe we reach out once a week or once a month. We get home, have dinner with the family, put the kids to bed, watch a TV show, and go to bed and do it all over again. We're just comfortable. We're like, well, I did my Christian duties, I did my task, I read my Bible, I took care of my family, but I'm not changing. We're just comfortable. We're just kind of sitting there. We're just on the floor. You know, we're supposed to be a torch. But the only people that can see my torch right now, this microphone, is just the people right in front of me. If you're in the back there, you can't see my torch. You know, because you're, you're just on the ground level, you're not growing, you're not changing. And then year in and year out, it's like you look back at last year, it's like, what I change? Well, I, I, you know, I, I served at that one extra time. You know, we're not really getting uncomfortable. But when you decide to get uncomfortable, this is what starts to happen. You start a new routine. Maybe you pray 40 minutes a day, you read your Bible 40 minutes a day, you fast once a week. You get committed to doing a Bible study with somebody. You get committed to being in your Bible and you get committed to serving. You know, and now a little more people can see my torch. But then you say, I'm going to take it to another level. And at this level, you're tempted because you're like, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. It's a little unsteady. That's not that far away. My old comfort level isn't all that far away. But I'm going to keep going. I'm going to serve somebody that has never served me before. You step outside of your comfort zone. And you take the next step. And you're like, I'm going to love someone that I've never loved before. I'm going to love someone that's the hardest person to love in my family group. I'm going to love that guy or that girl. The one that every time you say, hey, that, <clears throat> that's who I'm going to love. I'm going to start praying two hours straight once a week. I'm going to fast once a week for two months. I'm going to start being bold and sharing my faith. I'm going to start telling people about God. And pretty soon, you've taken another, you've just taken this huge leap. And guess what? More people are seeing your torch now than they were last year. Because... You decided to step outside of your comfort zone. You guys can sit down. You know, street lights would be pointless if they were on ground level. Right? A light has more impact. The lights with the most impact are on a hill. Getting outside your comfort zone elevates your torch. You know, and I think it's time we have some men and women in this church that have some amazing torches. But you're comfortable. It's time, brothers and sisters, if that applies to you, 
elevate your torch. I want to challenge you to do something that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it stretches your schedule. Maybe it's, it's going to be changing the routine up. But I want to challenge you to start elevating the torch so that more people can see what you have to offer. Because there are men and women in this church that have amazing things to offer. But nobody can see the torch because it's down on the ground. All the people can see it is the people that you're right next to. We can make an impact on people. if We have the right message and the right example. And our example needs to pull us out of our comfort zone. Point number three. If you're going to have a sustaining torch, you have to have a heart for people. I got one scripture in this one, chapter two, or First Thessalonians chapter two, verse nineteen. I've been reading this scripture. I've been going through uh, Thessalonians a lot here lately, and this scripture just keeps coming back. And I keep learning this lesson that I have to take my heart for people to another level. First Thessalonians chapter two, he says, "For what is our hope, our joy?" Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul loved the Thessalonian church. He called them his crown. He called them his joy. His hope. You know, to have a heart for people like this is going to mean you got to be uncomfortable. I want to tell a story about a guy named Nicholas Winton. In December 1938, Nicholas Winton, he, he, was, a, he was a 29-year-old stockbroker in London. And he was about to go on a vacation. He was going to go on a skiing trip in Switzerland. And he received a phone call from his friend who was out in Prague, which is Czechoslovakia. And, he, and he's like, I have this interesting assignment for you. I need your help. Cancel the ski trip. Don't bring them. Come see me. You know, 1938, this is when the war, the world was on the brink of war. And Hitler was starting the, uh, the internment camps. You know, Jews were being persecuted. Anybody that didn't fit Hitler's perfect person was being persecuted. You know, and the, every, you know, everybody knew something was coming. Went, and went there, and he was asked to help in the camps. And he saw, you know, and he saw with his own eyes the thousands of refugees that were just living in terrible conditions. You know, and Winton, along with others, knew that war was inevitable. They could tell by the, thing, the, the, the things that the, the Germans were starting to build around it that, that something was about to go down. He decided to take some steps. Again, remember, this all started because he gave up his vacation. He found out that the children of the refugees and other groups uh, and other groups of people who were enemies of Hitler were not being looked after. So he decided to come up with a plan to get the kids out. You know, and in terms of his mission, he wasn't thinking small numbers. 
He was thinking thousands of children. He was ready to start a mass evacuation. And he started, and Nicholas went, he set up his own rescue operation. You know, and at first, his office was the dining room table inside the hotel he was staying at. That was his first office. And they had thousands of people. They, once the word got out, thousands of people, they would come there, and, you know, understanding the danger that their, that their family and their children would potentially face. They would show up and bring their, their children to him. You know, thousands of parents heard about it. They heard about what he was trying to do. And there was just a line outside his door around the entire hotel. You know, Winton started contacting other governments of nations that he thought he could get the children to. He had to get them out, though. And the only two governments that responded were Sweden, we love the Swedes, and Britain. He actually called the U.S. and they said no. Great Britain, you know, accepted a promise to accept all the children under 18 years old as long as he found a home for them and a guarantor that would deposit 50 pounds, which was their money back then for each, or their money still, for each child to pay for their return home. So he needed to find a home, and they needed to have $50. You know, and because he wanted to save the lives of so many endangered children, uh, you know, as, as many as possible, he, he returned to London, and he started planning the transport of children to Great Britain. And he would work his regular job at the stock exchange by day. And he devoted late afternoons and evenings, his weekends, to the rescue efforts. And he would take regular trips back just to see what was going on. And all of this happened in a pretty short period of time. He had to find the funds because 50 pounds was a lot of money for one family that couldn't really eat to find. He would use a lot of his own money. He would use his money to bribe the Gestapo, the Gestapo, I think that's called. He'd use his money to bribe the Gestapo to kind of look the other way. He paid for, you know, it doesn't really say how many children, but he paid for a lot of different children. You know, and finding sponsors was one of the other huge problems because he wanted to make sure every child was placed in the right home. And on March 14th, 1939, he had his first success. The first transport of children left Prague for Britain by airplane. And he managed to uh, he managed to organize seven more transports. You know, and at this station, the British foster parents would wait to collect their char- uh, to collect their charges. And Winston, who organized the rescue, was set on ma- making sure the right kid was matched with the right foster parent. Five months later, the last train load left. On August 2nd, bringing the total number of rescued children to 669 kids five months later. You know, it's pretty impossible to to know or imagine the emotions of a parent sending their kid away to safety, knowing that they may never be reunited. But that was the reality that people faced back then. You know, it's probably... Think about the fears of the children leaving their families for the unknown, going to a completely different country. 
You know, on September 1st, a month after that, that last transport, 1939, the, he had the biggest transport of children organized, ready to go. 250 kids were ready to go. But on that day, Hitler invaded Poland. All the borders were controlled by Germany. They were closed. And his rescue efforts were put to an end. Within hours, Winton says, within hours of the announcement, the train disappeared. And none of the 250 children aboard were ever seen again. We had 200, they had 250 families waiting at the Liverpool Street Station that day. But they just waited in vain. Nothing was happening. And he recounts, he said, if the train had been just a day earlier, it would have come through. But not a single one of those children were ever heard from again. You know, and Winton's efforts were so significant. It was something that was driven just by a heart for people. He saw a problem and he decided to do something about it. Now, after the war, Nicholas Winton did not tell anybody about what had happened. Not even his wife knew until 1988. A half a century later, his wife was digging the attic, digging in the attic, and she found this scrapbook. And the scrapbook had all the photos of the kids. It had lists of what had happened, lists of the kids' names. And so she goes to her husband. She asks him about it, and he tells her the whole story. You know, actually, you can view the scrapbook today in the Holocaust Museum. Word got out, and then they eventually put him on a TV show, on the, a BBC TV show. And, and really quick, I want to show a clip from that show. So if we could hit those lights really quick, Tiffany, next to you, and Nate's going to show it. Just look at the uh, TV screens around you. That's where we're going to watch the clip. So there's four TV screens around here. It's only about a minute long. Press play, Nate. There you go. One second.
Oh, man. Well, sorry about that, guys. Video worked all the way through this morning. Um, the next scene you would see is maybe we'll well Nate, don't worry about it. The next scene you would see is the entire audience they had there were on those lists. You know, they asked people to stand up. You can go back and look it up. Go type in Nicholas Winton on YouTube. And they just had a whole group of people stand up. Nicholas Winton, it was the most emotional he said he had ever been. Just to see that. Because in his mind, he was just doing what needed to be done to save the people. He saw a problem and he decided to do something about it. And because of his efforts, there's about 6,000 descendants from those children and their, their families. 6,000 people are alive still because of those efforts. You know, we need to have a heart for people. Like what Paul talked about. You know, when I imagine, you know, when we get to heaven, after God says, well done and good and faithful servant. I can see God turn around and saying, all right, if you were impacted by Bruce Baylor, stand up. And thousands just stand up. If you were impacted by A.J. Howell, stand up. By Katie Edelman, stand up. And just, just seeing that thousands of people just stand up because... You decided to step outside your comfort zone because you decided to just have a heart for people. Because you decided to just open your mouth and tell somebody about the gospel. You know, we have the barbecue service next week. And I'm excited about tri-tip. But I am excited mostly about the fact that there might be someone whose eternity is going to be impacted there. Just because we decided to open our mouths. Maybe you decided to be uncomfortable at the supermarket and tell somebody about it. Guys, how many people do you want to have impacted by your efforts? You know, brothers and sisters, we need to live with purpose. We need to make sure that our message and our example line up. That we step outside of our comfort zones and that we have a heart for people because you will impact many with that. Let's be torches for Christ this fall. I love you. We're going to stand up and close in one final sermon.